Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So... Turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another fabulous episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And just a reminder, if you want to see our faces, and when you find out who the guest we have is today, you'll absolutely want to see his face. You can catch this episode on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so go check that out. So first, Joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, John Hughes. Hey, Lindsay, I'm back. Wink. Don't call it don't call it a comeback. We've been here for years. We actually have been here for years now. <laughs> a couple years. Yeah. At uh, least months. I don't know. Time is time is a flat circle these days. But yeah, don't call it a comeback. We have been around for a while now. Exactly. But here we are, and I'm excited about today. I am. Yes. So today, I think it's kind of obvious from my typical uh, use pun usage, what we're going to be talking about today. So our special guest today is someone who I think has had more comebacks and reinventions in show business than almost anyone I could think of. He is a musician, actor, and radio personality who's been entertaining us since the 1970s, fronting bands like Silverhead and Detective, and then checkered past with members like Steve Jones, Clem Burke, Nigel Harrison, Tony Sales. He also toured with another supergroup, The Power Station, replacing Robert Palmer, most notably at Live Aid, which was the first time he ever performed with Power Station, which is kind of insane. Mm. In addition to all that, if you didn't think that was enough, his acting credits include spots on Melrose Place, Seinfeld, Roseanne, Miami Vice, Northern Exposure, as well as countless voiceover credits. And you may remember when he reinvented himself to portray Murdoch, the arch nemesis of MacGyver for the series of that same name. And if that wasn't enough, on top of all that, he currently is a DJ on Little Steven's Underground Garage every weekday from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. Pacific on Sirius XM. But we, of course, here at Totally 80s know and love him best as the man who, along with Holly Knight, co-wrote Animotion's amazing top 10 80s hit, Obsession. Along, of course, with portraying the lead singer of the immortal punk band Scum of the Earth on an immortal episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. So, yes, I mean, that's that's a long resume. I think we're done with the podcast. I think I went on so long, we've run out of time. That's a long CV right there. Like I said, lots of reinventions and lots of comebacks. So that is why the Marquis himself is here today to talk about the biggest comeback stories of the 1980s. And without further ado, we are very happy to welcome the Joliet, the Marquis Michael DeBar. I'm exhausted. I know. Let's absolutely exhausted. Can we just like reconvene tomorrow? I need a nap. You've done a lot in your life, Michael. I I know. I'm to hear you say it. You know, I love you, Lindsay. You know that, John. It's the first time we've met. Hello. And hello, everybody out there. You know, yeah, I've done an awful lot. I'm 107 years old, but I think I look good. I think I look good. I have a great moisturizer. 
uh, and no no manager. You know, I manage myself. <laughs> do you really? Is that yes. true? With yes. Of, yes. Has that always been the case with all of these things you've done in your life? Yes. All the decisions, all of, all of those birds and everything I've chosen myself because I learned very early on that it is not that difficult to sell myself. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> you know, I know how to do that, you know, and I, I know how to take care of business on that level. And I think that's terribly important if you want to come back. You know, my whole thing about comebacks is that is I should have a band called the comebacks. You should. You have you several know, other bands. You just keep at it. You know, just you keep, keep at all those things that you mentioned, every single thing you mentioned, you know, I'm proud of. I think it's great. And I really loved everything. There's nothing that I can remember that I didn't like, you know. But, you know, so I, I do believe that one can, um, you know, create one's own career. I don't Absolutely. think you need anybody to help you. Lindsay, we are four and a half minutes in and we've learned the <laughs> secrets are La Mer, self-management and loving what you do <laughs> and a good attitude which you've always had michael but there's okay. another secret to come back to the 80s in particular when i was doing research for this podcast i was looking through all the artists we're you know possibly going to talk about and of all the people that seemingly you know came back against the odds in the 1980s it seems to me the common thread that orchestrated the comeback in almost every case was mtv mtv started in 1981 and they were of course playing a lot of new artists and they were very instrumental in launching artists like duran duran and culture club and madonna and the list goes on but they were also playing a lot of older artists because the people you know they were playing the artists that the people who ran the channel and the vjs grew up with and of course they had many hours to fill so in the middle of you know right next to culture club and madonna you'd see tina turner you'd see the kinks you'd see aretha franklin mtv stewart lots of rod lots of rod he never really went away though he wasn't really a comeback artist but definitely a lot of the people that we're going to talk about were people that you know maybe you thought were going to be relegated to like dinner theater or oldies reviews or you know that were b-list and then along came mtv started really pumping their videos not just old videos but you know a lot of these older artists got on board with making new videos that could compete with the kids all of a sudden they're the biggest stars on mtv and i think the obvious one we have to start with is tina turner yeah because she's finally getting into the rock and roll hall of fame this this uh year without ike turner she was already in without ike which is ridiculous the fact that she with all she's done that she was only inducted along with someone who she had to come back from the debacle of what he had done to her career in life. Well, it just gives you the whole notion of rock and roll hall of fame, doesn't it? Which we won't go into, but, but Tina, you know, that's a fantastic observation. You know, she deserved it so much. The documentary is extraordinary. Talk about comebacks. I mean, leaving with nothing from Ike, nothing, you know, the kids going to Europe, boom, 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 big hits. I mean, it's a fabulous story. And, and it would make, a, it did make a wonderful movie with Angela Bassett, mm -hmm. if you recall. But that is the major comeback. It really is. To go from sort of this country girl, you know, to create this iconic creature in the 80s is just so sexy and so mature and so wise. You know, and a Buddhist. Yeah. Oh, she, she? she went from the blues to a Buddhist, yes. She, but, she's, uh, she's uh, you know, mantras and praise every day. But when you turned on MTV in 1984, you saw what, What's Love Got to Do With It and Private Dancer. You saw them in high rotation yeah. all the time. And she, I don't, she was probably, she was definitely about 40 by then. Or how old was she by then? She, yeah, time. she was older. Yeah, but you she, know, she wasn't 18 like John Taylor. But with those legs and that hair and that denim jacket, uh, she looked like an MTV star right next to Cyndi Lauper and all of the people who were a lot younger than her. And it again, like I said, MTV was important. But I love that uh, comeback story because it wasn't just a comeback 
you know, professionally, like she hadn't had hits in a while. And then she was having the biggest hits of her career. She was winning album of the year, the Grammys, et cetera. It was a comeback from great personal strife and tragedy. And she wanted to be a rock star, Lindsay, yeah. you know, she wanted to go from the soulful blues of Icatina, which I adored that, that music. I mean, I love all of that stuff, you know, mm -hmm. not Bush City Limits and those incredible songs, but she wanted to be a rock star. And she made rock albums, rock ballads, rock this, rock that. You know, the band was a rockin' band. I just got it. I just remembered. I just mentioned that you, with Power Station, played Live Aid in yeah. Philadelphia. That's yeah. where Tina Turner and, and uh, Mick, Mick Jagger. Yeah, I got together with it. Yes, I, I was in a, a room the size of a, a little, tiny little uh, trailer with Jagger and Tina when they were rehearsing the song. I was in, you know, in the corner trying to just absolutely stay alive. <laughs> oh, I my mean, God. I, I was just, my heart was like, <laughs> you know, beating like a big bass drum. And I, I just couldn't, I thought, what am I doing here? This is insane. Apart from the fact that I'd only had one rehearsal or whatever it was, you know, with the passage. But to see these two be so professional about it and then go out on the stage and be so free. Can I ask you, was the skirt ripping, was that? No, you know, it wasn't planned. planned. No. Okay, that could have gone like the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake route no, if that perfect, yeah. if that wardrobe malfunction or that skirt removal hadn't gone just right. She had the words on her palm. <laughs> to the song? <laughs> no, to the, to the Leviticus in the Bible. No. Okay, <laughs> okay God. Stupid she question. the lyric on her palm. You know, going, you know reading. Remember, I mean, was, Shop was a current song it wasn't like you know an evergreen tune and but yeah do, do you remember this um i grew up in los angeles as, as you know john and kikq which was the um big top 40 station in la at that time when state of shock with michael jackson and who obviously originally sang it with mick jagger uh came out kikq played it for 22 hours straight, straight. They, nothing else, but they didn't say they were doing it. They were like back announcing like, and that was what's love, you know, th that was uh, girls just want to have fun as if it was a normal day on the radio, but they kept playing state of shock over and over. I actually called the station to say something was wrong because, you know, as good a song as state of shock is, I don't know if you need to hear it for 22 hours straight. <laughs> I did forget that Tina Turner played it at live a, but that actually says I could technically this is just a thought that just randomly popped in my head. You could technically say that Michael Jackson was a comeback artist of the 80s. I mean, the fact that obviously he'd had hits and hits, but the fact that Thriller was, you know, the biggest, well, not only one of the biggest albums of the 80s, but of all time. I don't know. And the anyone... video was the longest and the deepest and the most interesting. I mean, the fact is that he could dance like a motherfucker, like nobody else. And, mm -hmm. you know, video, empty video, I, you again, know, you know, so MTV, again, yeah. the performance of MJ, forget about it. I mean, it's just, he was the but, absolute queen, king. But when of, you talk uh, about any boy band artist breaking out as a solo artist, I mentioned Justin Timberlake as, you know, he's a very modern example of someone who came from a boy band and then like became even bigger as a solo artist. I mean, the ultimate template of that is Michael Jackson and with Thriller. And Harry Styles. That too. Yeah. That too. But, but yeah, uh, he did come. Yeah, yeah. From the Jacksons. It's an amazing comeback and incredible story. And where's the movie? You know, I mean, that would be serious stuff. That movie could go in several different directions, but the Tina Turner movie, I agree, was was you know a fantastic movie. But I also mentioned Aretha Franklin earlier, and like she was the other kind of big soul artist who came up in the '60s and '70s 
who absolutely became an MTV star. And I mean this with no sense of saying she didn't look like an MTV star. Unlike Tina, she was not dressing super flashy. No. She looked, you know, she looked like an elder stateswoman of R and B. And she was right there on MTV with Who's Zoom and Who, Pink Cadillac, Freeway of Love, the George Michael duet. I knew you were waiting. She was on MTV Incredible. all the time. Yeah, she I, knew what she was doing. I met her too. And, uh, you know, she was managerial also because she's been through such hell with men, you know, just pimping her. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and this is the one of the, well, if not the greatest blues singer and soul singer and, and ballad singer. And, but she knew what she was doing. You know, most of these things about come, coming back is you know where you can fit in again. You know, it's it's just a professional attitude of knowing where you can place yourself. You, if you have that energy in you, you can recreate yourself. And only a handful of people have done that. And that's why this particular um, podcast, video cast, is terribly important. You know, I mean, it's it's a spectacular thing. Cindy Lauper always comes to mind when I think about this. You know, she comes and goes and comes and goes per song. Right. You know what I mean? Madonna you know, too. Madonna too. Yeah, Madonna too. God bless her. Oh my God. I don't know if you saw on Jimmy Fallon the other night crawling across great. the table, but my goodness me, you got to give her props. Oh, man. You have to. You have, you have to. We're big boosters here of Madonna. We don't. We, we don't did a whole. It. We did a whole Madonna episode. So should yeah. we use the word booster right now? I'm pro booster. So yeah. I'm pro. I've got a band called the Boosters. <laughs> you have a lot of bands. We have three albums out. <laughs> three. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you, have a, you have a good point about knowing your worth and knowing where you can. Fit you got to do that, man. Look at Tina. You know, come on. But, she's the classic one. Thank God we started with her because she's the one that really came from a really criminal vibe, beaten up, yeah. all of that, and comes back and kicks ass and becomes the biggest star in the world. Are you kidding me? It's so beautiful. And she's so humble about it as well and honest. That's and the I, thing, telling I, the truth. I will also say, since we're talking about biopics, a recent biopic, the Aretha biopic with Jennifer Hudson playing Aretha Franklin, respect is definitely worth a watch as well. With sim similar, not obviously exact same um, backstory, but similarly, similarly harrowing backstory coming from overcoming a lot of adversity and persevering and, you know, having a career that spanned decades for sure. Yes. I yes. do think uh, there is a part of it that plays into it, though. I wouldn't say luck, but people who know your prior work and respected it helping you come back. And I think Tina is actually an example of that. Do you guys remember how that all started? Why don't you tell me how it all started? John, tell me how it started. Well, uh, he, she was asked to do vocals for Heaven 17 in the British Electronic Foundation for a cover of Ball of Confusion. Wait, wow. what? 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 Yeah, 1982. And it was very hip. You know, you've got this synth pop thing happening in Sheffield. And for them to, they thought getting Tina Turner was a huge score. Like, wow, we got Tina it Turner was. on our track. <laughs> Whereas Tina's management was like, wow, we're with this really hip uh, 80s forward facing band. And then they went on to produce a one off single for Let's Stay Together, the Al Green cover. Yes. Yes. And I had so, no idea, and no I'm actually me. embarrassed I didn't I'm know that, but that is so cool. Yeah. That and, is and so, so cool. That helped get her a deal with Capital. There was an in-house producer named Carter that kind of took this on himself and said, you know what, I'm going to do this. No one at the label believed in it. It was Carter's Folly is what it was called. And he worked, and he got the fix, you know, to come in and play on Better Be Good to Me, Cy Kernan, and, and, and Jamie yeah, Westmoreland. Yeah, you're got right. to work on that as well. And all of a sudden he turned this album in and they kind of threw this single out there for love. What's love got to do with it. And they gave them a few thousand dollars for a video and boom, 
There you go. How, how do I not know this and not that necessarily Heaven 17 guys did this to get a medal or get any credit, but they should definitely be getting more credit. I don't remember in a Grammy speech or anything. I'm not saying I just don't remember. Like, I don't remember anyone saying like, this is how the ball got rolling. No pun intended for <laughs> Tina's comeback. It, That's crazy. Yeah, it's not part of the legend at all. Which yeah, is no, very interesting. Wow. yeah. It kind yeah. of bumps me out because they do deserve a little Props. Of course, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you know that that was that's amazing information. I never knew that. I mean, I actually, I need to talk to my therapist. And always no, it, it reminds me. You know, there's probably you know other examples of John or Michael that you can think of, or where like there was like a soul singer that sort of got brought onto a, another artist track. Like you know, for top of mind, I'm thinking of like when Eddie Money brought you know. Um, Ronnie Spector on to you know take me home tonight that was actually a little bit of comeback even for him he hadn't had a, some hits in a while and then he had That's this true. big hit and not only was Ronnie singing the hook but she was like in the chorus like just like Ronnie said so I mean she was in the video looking fabulous and yeah there have been probably some other examples of these kind of you know artists that sort of got a second win because you know a younger artist or a current artist Respect gave him a chance yeah, and gave them a chance to come to come back. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Well, and I have a. I mean, I'm set, I'm taking a little. Sorry to to yeah. jump genres here, but I would argue that aside from Tina, the other biggest comeback of the entire '80s was because a younger, very different artist brought them on a track, and it kind of got the ball rolling. And that was Aerosmith, which all started with Run DMC and Rock This Way. They actually Aerosmith. They kind of hitched their wagon to two trends that were happening in the eighties. They hopped onto the rap thing, which was very new and very, you know, growing and, and doing got other writers. <laughs> that too. That helped. That helps. But I don't know. About well, are you but, kidding? Are, are I mean, it helped commercially. It helped help commercially. Critically. Well, commercially is what we're talking about, isn't it? True. True. Fair enough. But you know, they hopped on kind of reluctantly from what I understand. It was like Rick Rubin's idea, but they hopped onto the, the growing rap thing with, Run DMC, who were like the first really big MTV rap superstars. And it absolutely exploded their career and started kind of a new genre and like boosted both the bands and like, you know, rap rock became a thing for better or worse because of that. But then, and that was Run DMC, a young upstart band bringing them on. But then they kind of hitched their wagon to another trend, which was in the late 80s, all of the hair metal stuff was huge. And all of those bands, Poison, Motley Crue, Warrant, Guns N' Roses, list goes on. All the headbangers, ball bands, owed a debt. They worshipped Aerosmith. And when Aerosmith came back with like Pump and Permanent Vacation, they were on headbangers ball alongside all those bands, still looking the part, still sounding great. And they had these epic videos. Again, MTV is so important. Like epic, like VMA winning videos, videos with Alicia Silverstone in them. And then they Aerosmith became the biggest band in the world for a long time. And people, I mean, you remember this, Michael, people thought Aerosmith were like done. No one was expecting them. Like the, the, when they got back with Joe Perry and Tyler and Perry got back together and they did the done with mirrors album. Like no one was like, what a great comeback. Like people thought Aerosmith were over. You right? know what else did it? Lindsay and John sobriety. Yep. Steve and Joe got sober and got it together and said, let's, this is the only band. This is the original five members for 50 years. Wow. But I must say that it is Desmond Child and it is all of the great writers of that time that put them back on the map. The songs are what count. And, you know, you can say that they inspired um, all of these hair bands, uh, you know, most of which were, 
you know, shall we say, uncool. You know, I you think can that, say that. I love me some Motley Crue and Poison. I think. Oh, me too. I, I like I like Motley Crue, but but I think that the whole thing about Tyler and Joe is they're Mick and Keith. You know, they are. There is a certain pathway that I think Aerosmith followed very cleverly, but supremely talented. I mean, an absolutely extraordinary band that stayed together, but had the common sense to get a better producer, and get better writers. I mean, that's really what makes you is the tunes. Yeah. The songs really make, I, I think so, you know, and, and I think in terms of all the hair bands, I think the dolls had more of a physical influence than, uh, you know, Steve and Joe, because Steve and Joe in the beginning were like Mick and Keith, and then suddenly they became very, very theatrical, and Steve became Janis Joplin. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the fact that it, this comeback that they had, when we're talking about such unlikely comebacks or uncomebacks, at least at the time, I didn't see coming. It started with Run DMC. And oh, then yeah. Unquestionably, the rap vibe to put them back on the map. But then they really, you know, mined that gold mine, didn't they, in other ways? People back then thought that rap was a passing fad, that this was something that would go away in like a couple years. So having Aerosmith get on Run DMC's track actually, of course, helped them. But the fact that, you know, this supposed new gimmick rapping that some people didn't believe in rebooted a career of a 70s you know hard rock band it's like you know where's their biopic i want biopics for everybody yeah that's brilliant there should be a biopic absolutely who would play steve tyler miley cyrus <laughs> perfect <laughs> not not a bad casting well on a side note since we're sort of talking about you know um younger bands paying respect in, to an older band and that reviving the older artist's career and we're also sort of on the the tip of hair metal there's the whole Slade Quiet Riot phenomenon. Like yeah. Quiet yeah. Riot were practically MTV's like house Slade cover band. They didn't cover just one song. They they covered obviously Come On Feel the Noise which made uh Metal Health the like the first metal album to go to number, number one. 1. It actually displaced Thriller by Michael Jackson That's off right. the charts which was a really big deal at the time. Kevin but then Dubrow. But then they did, yeah, rest in peace, Kevin Dubrow. But then they did M Mama We're All Crazy Now and suddenly we have all these VJs like Martha Quinn on MTV talking about oh this is a slade cover i will freely admit i i did not know who slade were at that time i'm you know obviously you probably knew slade michael or probably i did and kevin dubrow was a brilliant guy he adored british 70s rock and roll bands you know like and slade with like you know royalty in england naughty yeah. holder naughty yeah. holder had one of the great joe cocker stevie marriott that throaty soulful but he wrote songs that were killer Mm -hmm. killer commercial songs and kevin had that vibe he loved stevie mary he loved humble pie and it was a he was a beautiful guy but again you know narcotics took him god rest his yeah. soul but they were really they, as you say correctly they were the first band to get to that metal vibe at number one i mean there was but, a major thing and everybody else hated them you know other bands went oh yeah. god no please they're not but, cool at all but my point is Slade, as you mentioned, they were huge in England. They were yeah. not huge in America. No, nobody they knew were, who the hell Slade was. They were, you know, a glam rock band from the 70s. This band, Quiet Riot, covers two of their songs. They're both very big MTV hits. And then all of a sudden, Slade are all over MTV. They, like, MTV used to play Run, Run Away. Like, yeah. pretty, like, decent yeah. rotation. That's right. That's and exactly my, right. And and my oh my, they Did, both uh, yeah my oh my they both hit the top forty here, which was so frustrating for someone like me who I actually grew up with Slade, even though I grew up in Ohio, because our AOR station WMMS is one of the bigger AOR stations in yeah. the nation, very influential. They were all over glam rock. We got Slade, we got Susie Quattro, 
Uh, and so are you I, talking about WMMS? I am 101. The buzz talking about Kid Leo right now. We're talking right? about Kid Leo. We're yeah. talking, yeah, John Gorman, all, all those people, and wow. they got it. So I got slayed early on, and, wow. and then. So it sounds like a disease. I don't know. <laughs> I was an early. <laughs> yeah, I got slayed. I'm slayed. I got slayed. Uh, I have three boosters coming. <laughs> but to see them, <laughs> for me, it was, it was a little frustrating to see them come back with this, with the mm. drum machines and the synthesizers, as opposed to Slade, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, it well, was nice. Right, you have at least to see them get finally recognition in the U.S. Well, that opens the door to a comeback. It's you know a band that definitely was a fan of Slade and owed a debt to Slade, and uh, interestingly, comeback uh, 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 drum machines and dr technology of that sort definitely was orchestrate or orchestral in their comeback. Now they weren't like okay, Pyromania was a really big album, so I'm not saying this was like a typical comeback. But when you know Def Leppard, who are huge Slade fans, and from that that uh, era obviously when rick allen lost his arm in that car accident in the 80s and obviously he was the drummer and then they decide to continue with him as opposed to what you know frankly a lot of bands would have done was would have been to say okay sorry you have one arm you're no longer a drummer you know the fact that not only did the band continue and have success but the album after that the album hysteria was That's great their biggest album ever. I mean, it's yeah. surpassed any of the hit albums they had before. And the, from what I understand, the producer, Mutt Lang, he actually worked with the limitations that Rick Allen had as a one-armed drummer because he was using, you know, um, I, I'm not an expert on this kind of technology, but, you know, whatever technology to uh, compensate for what he would have done with his other arm. And sort of using electronic drums, which was an anthema to a lot of hard rock bands then, but like they basically created a new like high octane sound on songs like pour your some sugar on me. They made, they're the ultimate example of lemons from, you know, lemonade from lemons situation. And I call that a comeback. It's not a comeback where like their first, they hadn't had any hits in a while, but I, I'm sure everyone, everyone in the band management, when they heard about Rick Allen's accident, and that Rick Allen was going to stay in the band. I'm yeah. sure no one expected hysteria to be the result. Well, they came back from tragedy and made them even bigger. You yeah. know, the, the other thing of what you mentioned is in passing is Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang created that record. You know, I mean, the, he is one of the greatest rock and roll producers of all time and has made many, many, you know, but they but they were smart, you know, they they stuck together. And I think that they, the inner consciousness of the of their fans going, what? You're keeping your drummer. I think that was very, very important in their comeback because it's such a beautiful thing to have done. People you know, rallied for them, rooted. They for rallied, them. yes, exactly. Story. They rallied for for this wonderful guy. You know, this this sweet guys and wonderful guys, and and then they made this killer album. You know, which is just a it's a beautiful story and, and a perfect uh, comeback for this particular vibe here that we're talking about. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's very, really you know, uplifting when so many things are downlifting. Well, there are quite a few, you know, if we're getting into this kind of this train of thought, there's quite a few comebacks where it's more like they overcame tragedy. A band member died, for instance, and you just absolutely thought it was over. And, you know, I mean, we got to talk about ACDC. That is like the fact that they replaced well, Ron Scott, who's one of the greatest rock frontmen forever, 
and they did Back in Black in 1980, and that became one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Of all time, yeah. And ACDC became bigger than ever. I don't. I'm sure a lot of their fans did not see that coming. That's an ultimate rock and roll against the odds comeback. There's a biblical vibe there too, because I knew Bon. I knew him really good. Oh, you did? Oh yeah, in London, and uh, and he died in London, yeah. But but what was dramatic and brilliant about that was this man called Brian Johnson, who literally could do that level of singing up there. It's really, really hard to sing up there, you Mm -hmm. know, but they found him. And that's pretty biblical in a sense, that Bon Scott, who had this incredible voice, and this guy, Brian, and then the album's the biggest album ever. It's a wonderful, wonderful reincarnative comeback. I got to ask you, Michael, so you knew Bon Scott when, yeah. um, when you know, I'm sorry if you're, you're lost. I don't know if you knew him around the time. Like, yes, we were all were. fucked up. It could have been anybody that went, you know, but yeah, to be him, which was really horrible because the band was so exquisite. And then later, my band Detective, they opened for us <laughs> in the Midwest. We did a tour with ACDC. With, with Brian Johnson. And really? I, yes. And I remember distinctly, out of my mind, in the dressing room, listening. What? I go out. I get in the crowd. I go, this is the greatest rock band. I have. This is insane. Were this you is surprised? So I was uh, surprised, furious, <laughs> and <laughs> impressed beyond all measure because they were so simplistic. I said, this is... You know, we were really complicated, sort of heavy metal, Led Zeppelin, yeah. but like prog, but not. But, you know, and uh-huh. they were just rocking. And I, I guess, thought, oh, God, let's go back to the hotel and do coke. Yeah. I can't, you know, <laughs> just take me away. Yeah, it's that's a tall order. That, I mean, I'm sure you 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 succeeded, but that is a tough act to follow. when Oh, impossible. No, we did not succeed at all. You know, uh, I mean, okay. they, they blew us away completely. And we were all stoned and stupid. And they were they were like drinkers, but just really in control man angus oh my god malcolm malcolm especially it was an amazing band i'm just asking when i asked if were you surprised knowing bond and knowing what a you know amazing frontman and and fearsome talent he was were you surprised when you witnessed brian on stage shocked that he pulled it off as well as he did absolutely completely shocked yeah you know and i saw them i saw that version very early on with brian and i thought my god you know they've done something that is uh, clearly something that's very spiritual i felt you know because that music is a trance like music it's it's sort of very very sort of uh, you know, catchy and, and controversial and powerful and loud and teenage and young and, pa- you know, all of that stuff. And yeah. he captured all of that, but he was every man. He wasn't a gorgeous, yeah. you know, front man. You know, he was a tough, like, yeah, uh, 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 hat. And, uh, uh, and it's all about that. It wasn't like Mick, you know, you know mm-hmm. it was like tough and strong, like Bond was. Mm-hmm. He always like always showed his body off Bond, you know, he's a beautiful guy and had a lot of balls and Brian took those balls and rocked them. <laughs> For those about to rock, we salute you and your balls. Indeed. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, <laughs> similar idea. Yeah, uh, 
Similar idea, definitely different genre, but I think this qualifies. I'm sure, John, you'll agree. I think the whole Joy Division New Order thing is such an insane comeback. Because oh, yeah. yeah. what's it? What obviously, you know, Joy, Ian Curtis, he um, committed suicide on the eve of what was supposed to be their US tour. Yep. You know, Joy Division were about to be huge here. What's crazy is not only did they reconvene as New Order, not only did they go on that tour anyway as New Order with some mixed response at the time because, you know, People they hadn't got it together quite. But here's the thing that I only recently found out. So they did they didn't even take, I mean, in retrospect, maybe this wasn't the healthiest thing to do. The surviving members of Joy Division did not even take a moment to process the fact that they had lost their lead singer, who was also their friend, who was young, who died by suicide. Literally, okay, so they had an inquest over the weekend, and literally the Monday after Ian Curtis's inquest, they reconvened and started writing the song that was a tribute to Ian Curse was called dreams never end. But like pretty much the minute Joy division uh, was kaput, which they decided unlike with ACDC, for instance, that it was kaput because the lead singer had died. The surviving members met in a pub and said, what are we going to do now? And they decided to form another band, sl slightly different sounding band and were bigger than Joy Division, not only bigger than Joy Division ever, were probably bigger than Joy Division ever would have been had Joy Division continued, a, a more commercial sound, a more dancey sound. But, you know, I interviewed Peter Hook once for Yahoo where he says, you know, that was an era where suicide and feelings in general, especially in the North and Manchester, were like not really discussed, not understood. And they were in shock and denial. And maybe in retrospect, it wasn't the healthiest thing to like two days after your lead singer dies, start a new band and get right back into the rehearsal space. But that's what they did, obviously, with commercially successful results. That's how they processed it. They were in shock and denial at the time. But the fact that New Order sprung from the ashes of Joy Division so quickly is shocking to me. And, a gr and again, you know, an amazing story. Well, it's it's really. I'm sorry to sorry, sorry, John, but but the north of England is very stalwart. You have to be really ballsy to be able to exist in that, especially the working class. You've got to be really strong. And Ian Curtis was an anomaly. I mean, this was Jesus. You know, this was a guy. This was a real philosopher, a very depressed philosopher. He was like some French existential author who who offed himself. You know. But the others, right? We're gonna, we're gonna get going, and we're gonna do it again, and we're gonna write these great songs, and, and they did. And it's a miracle. I mean, it's beautiful that they could do that. Ian Curtis replacing Ian Curtis, and who the, was just a, a classic artist. And the thing is, is, when I interviewed Peter Hook about all this, he basically said that you know, obviously, people, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this know, but if you don't, you know, Ian Curtis had epilepsy, and he it was getting worse and severe, and that contributed to his depressive state it was but the he, girl it was the girl there was some of you that know. with uh as well yeah. i mean his life was getting complicated he had uh, an emotional affair going on with someone else while he was married and had a yeah. new baby but his epilepsy was worsening he was having these fits that were harder and harder to control and he was hiding it from the band or minimizing it to the band you know even when the band was like are you sure you're okay you know you just like yeah. collapsed and hit your head on a wall or something he was like i'm fine i'm fine you know because again that's stiff upper lip stall that's right thing you're talking about yes but you know they they were also with their eye on the prize that things were going so well for joy division and the u.s tour was booked and that they you know um didn't uh really kind of think about his well-being at maybe as much as they should when he said yeah i'm fine don't worry about it they took him at his word instead of going actually 
maybe you're not fine. You know, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to keep Well, they were so young. They're not psychiatrists. Yeah. They're rock and roll musicians, you know, and uh, it's a completely different thing. They were very, you know, they're adolescents and they're going to deal with this complex guy. I mean, it was impossible. They were probably glad in some dreadful way but that whether, they could do it themselves, you know. Whether it was, you know, psychologically Awful. healthier enough to compartmentalize that and just move on and, you know, close that chapter and start a new band. It obviously resulted in a great new band that had many yeah. hits. John, you were about to say something about yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. I think Michael hit it all. I, you drank your feelings. I, and you know, a lot of times with these, uh, these bands, you don't have time to, you don't have the time or the luxury to ruminate. You've got a contractual obligation you have to fulfill like it or not or you lose a lot of money. That is to my point that I wonder that had uh, Ian not passed away and they, you know, presumably would have continued on for a lot longer time as Joy Division, you know, would it have evolved into more of the sound that New Order had or would they have had so much success? Of course, there are very, you know, there are very different schools of thought, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there are, it's kind of like two different camps and Joy Division. There's like a meme going on. It's like a Breakfast Club meme where they show the Ali Sheedy and that's Joy Division and they show Molly Ringwald and that's New Order, you know? It's true. It's but music true. is entertaining for God's sake. Yeah. It's an entertainment. It's not like, oh, he's suicidal and epileptic. Let's buy the record. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've got to give out good vibes. You can sing about sadness and breakups, but it's a song. It's not a fact. You know, we're here to entertain and make people feel good and, uh, you know, Ian was not in that uh, atmosphere. No. You know, it was a different nope. ethos he had. Nope, unintended. Yeah. Well, it was a different vibe he had completely. And and, and the following band was a completely different band. 100%. Well, speaking of good vibes, but also speaking, John, I want to let you have the floor for this one. In terms of bands that sprang from tragedy in the sense that they lost a key member and then got bigger than ever with the album that came out after that. Like, we got to talk about the B-52s. Crazy. Uh, you've got a band who were uh, indie, underground, alternative rock, college rock, whatever you want to call it, novelty with Rock Lobster. Some people considered them. I don't consider Rock Lobster a novelty song. I think it's an amazing surf record. Uh, and then, you know, their 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 commercial uh, fate is kind of on the downside. And then they lose Ricky Wilson to AIDS in 1985 when they're making probably their most introspective mature album that just gets completely overshadowed by the loss of this member. And was that they, bouncing off the satellites? Bouncing off the satellites, probably my favorite B-52s record. Uh, you've got stuff like Ain't That a Shame, which Sinead O'Connor has covered. Wow. Uh, just an amazing record. Yeah. And then... And they, he was only, I should point out, not only was he only 32, which adds to the tragedy, but it's its its tragic enough to lose a bandmate, but he was also Cindy Wilson's brother. Right. And so this. you've got this, and, and they were all best friends from Athens. You've got this this event that destroys them emotionally. Unlike, unlike New Order, they took time. They took uh, a sabbatical. They said, you know, we don't know if this is going to continue. They actually did a music video after that for a girl from Ipanema without Ricky. Mm. There's a nice little tribute where he's the son and you can see his face, but then they just kind of withdrew and then they just re, uh, started testing the waters and getting together and seeing what would happen. And, and you've got Keith Strickland coming from behind the drum kit, teaching himself how to play guitar wow. and writing songs. And then they, they do some songs with Don was and Nile Rogers. And it's kind of a lark and, 
They put it out. Channel Z is the first single. Why? I, I don't know why Love Shack was not the first <laughs> single, but Channel Z kind of gets, you know, on 120 minutes and gets some play on modern rock radio. And then Love Shack comes out and it's like, wow, talk about a comeback. Absolutely. And then the album Cosmic Thing that had Channel Z and Rome and Love Shack on it, that album in the U.S. alone sold 4 million copies. I don't think anyone would have ever back in the Rock Lobster days thought that a band, a cult band, a college rock band, whatever, like b would have a quadruple selling album. And it was largely on the strength of Love Shack, which was on MTV all the time. Side note, the first time RuPaul was ever on MTV was in that video. And, uh, you know, in the halter top, the lavender halter top and shorts, like kind of doing the limbo and the love shack. But that song was everywhere. It still is everywhere. It's like any wedding you go to any bar mitzvah, you're going to hear it. I've actually heard it, honestly, too many times. If anything, I'm happy they had this comeback. If anything, it just kind of bumps me out that a band as awesome as the B-52s are in the mainstream most recognized for that song. because They were so ahead of the game, you guys. Yeah. They were so LGBT. Yeah, the whole thing that culturally... They were so ahead of their time, and yet they had hits. You know, it's not as if they did. I was, um, it's an amazing story. It really that, is. Where's that it's, biopic? It, it would be. Yeah, it would be fascinating for right now. It'd be the clap. But you know, the movie makers—they don't want that. They, they, you know, they want one person. You know, in the middle there. No, I just think the fact the that Mick you know, Jagger story. You know. Yeah. Also, like, what year did uh, Ricky Wilson die? Was it 1985, John? 1985. Yeah. He died of, time. Yeah. Yeah. So he died of you know complications from AIDS at a time yeah. when there that was still a pretty the whole idea of AIDS like you know being Shocking. in the news. It was still kind of pretty new. You weren't hearing about, you know, a lot of celebrities, right. you know, at least being open about the fact that, that they had it or or yeah, that it was, still, it was still a sense of extreme shame. Uh, yes. you, know, you had Klaus Nomi, I think, was probably the most notable person before that. Very good. Actually admitted, you know, that he had this. And it, it, I, I, to go back to Love Shack, you know, it's a bummer that that's what people know them for. I do take solace in the fact that Rome got to number two. And it's a great song as well, because Rome is an amazing, amazing single. It is. And like the vocals on it, the girls vocals on it are just like so robust and so awesome. You did mention since we were talking about this, you mentioned that one of the producers on it for and I know he did six of the songs on Cosmic Thing was Nal Rogers. And I think we should talk about him because yes. he had quite a comeback <laughs> as a producer in the 80s. We have to remember the 70s ended with this bullshit disco demolition night in Chicago where, you know, the night disco died. It was a very yeah. homophobic and racist mm. event. Yep. And it's weird to me that it had such, you know, in a time before social media that it went viral in its own way, got report on the news and actually quite literally killed off disco. I mean, disco still existed. And, and it, the Bee Gees. It yeah. hurt all these people's careers. And, you know, Nile Rogers has talked about it a lot in interviews. But then in the 80s, he had, I mean, disco didn't die. It just started being called other things. Dance music yeah. didn't die. But he had a comeback, Nal Rogers did, in the 80s. He was producing, like, it started in 1980 when he co-produced the Diana album for Diana Ross that had, like, Upside Down and I'm Coming Out. But then... David the, Bowie. David Bowie and Let's Dance, Madonna Like a Virgin, the stuff he did with Duran Duran, the Reflex remix, the Notorious album. I actually just recently realized that he produced In Excess's Original Sin, which is my favorite In Excess song. Yeah. He became... Absolutely, like, and he's had many comebacks because I mean, even in the recent, he's years, still coming back. Daft yeah. Punk and other things he produces, but in the eighties, like, I think it was actually correct me, John. You'll know this. Like, it was the Let's Dance project with David Bowie 
that kind of really put it, Nile out there as a produce in-demand producer for 80s acts. It was an amazing rebranding as, you know, I here's the mastermind behind Chic. Chic, thank God they're in the Rock Hall. One of the most underrated bands of the Rock. Tony Hall. Thompson. Yes. And <laughs> yeah, you know him, don't you? Uh, I did. You, you, I did. you, you, you shared a stage with him. Yeah. I sang with him and he played with him for six months of my life. And yeah. He was the greatest drummer ever, you know. Not only did he come back from the, the dissolution of Chic, he came back from a production misfire with Debbie Harry and Cuckoo. Oh, that's right. It's, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, which I love that record, but people did not at the time. Uh, wow, how interesting! That's yeah. true. Yeah, I think Debbie a lot of that came down to the album cover. I think the album cover freaked everyone out. That yeah, game. that could be it. Yeah, it's but as simple as that. Yeah, backfired is a great single, and in he was already uh, already kind of out as a producer when he just started moving into this direction. So to have Bowie pick him. To produce Let's Dance or EMI, depending on who you. Well, Stevie Ray really loved it. Uh, yeah. Nile is a big, is a very long story about all of that. But I mean, is well, it a is it a story you'd like to share with the group, Michael? Well, the Bowie that was a specific thing, task that David put upon himself was to make the biggest fucking record he ever made, and this was his plan, which to me is the most exquisite thing because after all of that, he did what the fuck he pleased because he'd shown that he could do play to sixty thousand people. And then he could go to Berlin with Iggy, you know. So it's a very interesting vibe. And of course, everybody turned to Nile. Nile was the groove guy. That's that, you know, the whole fucking groove of it all. Nile Rogers was Mr. Groove and remains so to this day. You know, he's a very active social media. Lindsay, mm -hmm. John, I'm sure you're very aware. You know, he's never got. It's interesting to see use of the word comeback and, and uh, Nile <laughs> Rogers in the same sentence because he never went anywhere. Yeah, reinvention, I think. Is that's that's the vibe. And that was Bowie, you see, because obviously David would reinvent himself every 20 minutes, you know. <laughs> Today I'm I'm sort of Greta Garbo and tomorrow I'm Steve McQueen, you know, which is the title of my autobiography, incidentally. But, <laughs> love that. But, you know, amazing. Niall, come on, fantastic. I, I just love him. I mean, love him. John, did you have more thoughts about how, like, the Bowie thing kind of was very important to Niall's production discography oh yeah it sold millions That's it, what, you know. they put him on the map as a producer and he was the hot guy for much of the 80s you had uh duran duran grabbed him for notorious mm -hmm. uh and bernard well obviously this is going to be way too much for one episode so we're gonna all have to wait for it come back for part two with michael Devar and john who's join us next time on totally 80s this was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Totally 80s.